We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription. Just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. One of the most defining moments of the past 12 months of my life involved an Argos catalogue and a chocolate mousse. I was with Charlie and for the first time it was just him and I. Charlie has cerebral palsy, his, his movement's very limited, his speech is slow and often unclear. And in fact, it was one slow dinner time. It was always slow. I'd gone to the fridge to look what there was for pudding and uh, Charlie was there just thumbing through his favourite Argos catalogue. I said to him, hey Charlie, would you like some chocolate mousse for your pudding? And I got no reply. I asked again, a little bit annoyed at his lack of manners. And still nothing. I asked a third time, this time eyebrows patronisingly raised, Charlie, would you like some chocolate mousse for your pudding? And at last he replies, Sam, can I afford these headphones? Sometime later, I divert his attention away from the Argos catalogue and he decides he'd like some chocolate mousse. And I remember as I was supporting him to take his first teaspoonful of that pudding and just watching and waiting as he slowly savoured it. A painful realisation hit me. I couldn't bear the slowness of what was happening. I remember my body physically tensed up and it almost felt as if I was being tugged backwards. I was sharing life with someone who was living at a disruptive pace. Now, that experience continues to form me and to be honest, the slowness of life in our community hasn't become much more comfortable to me. But I am learning about life with God through my discomfort. That God's love is always slow. Matthew's Gospel reveals this extraordinary secret, which is that those perceived as weak in our world, the little ones as it calls them, possess a uniquely clear vision of God and his kingdom. Matthew chapter 11 says that the wise and learned will fail to grasp God's judgment and the timing of God's judgment. But Jesus is heartened in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, that the little ones seem to get it. The idea complements the Apostle Paul's understanding of salvation, who talks about Jesus embracing the weakness of the cross in order to reveal God. And so I wonder if in our day, those perceived as weak in our world might be what liberation theologian John Sabrino calls a mysterious locus for salvation. It is among those perceived as weak in our world where God continues to feel most at home. And that is where disability and theology meet.
I don't think that the, the God-human relationship has ever been described more intensely than in the language of covenant. And ancient Israel, a, a weak nation in the ancient Near East, imagines its covenant relationship to God as being profoundly slow. What do I mean by that? Take the covenant made with Abraham, for example. It constitutes Israel's national identity and it promises this vast royal ancestry that will take centuries to be delivered, however you look at it. And after that ancestral covenant is made, Abraham is told his only son must die. It's as though Abraham and Israel itself are being tugged backwards. Later on in Israel's story, the hope of an anointed one bound up in the Davidic covenant comes to reach its climax centuries later in the advent of Jesus. And yet first Judah will be exiled to Babylon and the Davidic dynasty will be brought to this devastating halt. Again, a tug backwards. Or St Paul, for example, he struggles to comprehend the slowness of God's new covenant. And in fact, you can read it in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's earliest extant letter. He imagines that he's going to be whisked away to heaven in his own lifetime. Nice try, Paul. Again, there is a tug backwards. Spiritually speaking, then, I think the pace of modern life with our exponentially increasing levels of connectivity is actually nothing unique. In fact, we're insanely company when we feel frustrated by the disruptive slowness of God's work with us. William Albright is among the Old Testament scholars to have noticed the etymological connection between the Hebrew word for covenant, barit, and the Akkadian word, virtu, which refers to a shackle, or a chain, or a bond. Perhaps then, we can say that somewhere in Israel's conception of its covenant relationship to God was the sense of being chained and tugged into a slower and holier way of relationship. God's covenant love is always slow, but it permits great tenderness. Steve is a man with Down syndrome in our community who is living at God's pace. And Steve loves chocolate brownie Saturday. In fact, there's as much celebration and joy in his hundredth reminder to himself on a Saturday morning that today is the day he will be eating a chocolate brownie, as there is when the pudding actually arrives. The slowness with which he is at ease is permitting him to savour good things with tenderness and joy. Or David, another member of our community with a learning disability, who keeps himself busy with many things, woodwork, music, and much more. And yet he's not so hurried that he won't be gladly interrupted by the offer from a friend or from a stranger of a hand to clasp his own around. He's living outside a world whose relentless pace has made most of us too embarrassed to stop and ask to be touched. The church is enriched by those at the margins who understand that love is always slow. 
In fact, we'll receive the tenderness of God's kingdom from them. It's ironic that many slurs have sought to ridicule the slower way of relationship with which many people with learning disabilities are at ease. Stanley Hauerbass, a writer on theology and disability, might describe those slurs as the product of modernity, whose cherishing of ideals like independence and autonomy has actually helped shape a narrative of loss and deprivation around the subject of learning disability. And yet, to be tugged backwards into the slow, tender life of God is truly rich. It's to receive hospitality without making excuses. It's to miss appointments because we've over-enjoyed things. It's even to appreciate why prayer can be so awkward and strained. And perhaps for those of us whose lives are marked by the familiar peace of a slow covenant with God, it's to have your life abruptly halted by a pandemic and not feel compelled to call the feeling strange. Because divine love, that is kind, patient, persevering, is always slow. This is the most difficult talk I've ever given. Not because the Me Too movement is difficult to talk about, although it can be, but because it feels like now more than ever, the world is imploding and everyone shouting all at once. The noise is deafening and I don't really want to add to it. And also because the movement at the front of all of our minds right now is Black Lives Matter. And so I thought about dropping out of Theology Slam because I think we all ought to be listening urgently to what Augustine has to say. But if I'm to speak at all, I'm going to talk about what Me Too and Black Lives Matter have in common. Solidarity. When we say Me Too or Black Lives Matter, we're not speaking on our own. We're aligned to something greater than ourselves. We join a surge towards justice, towards the liberation of those who have been treated cruelly, abused by individuals and systems that attempt to make us suffer in silence. The Me Too movement shatters silence. It began with the voice of one black woman crying into a wilderness of prejudice and fear. When Tarana Burke set up the Me Too activist group in 2005, she had no idea that her words would become the liberative cry of thousands of survivors of sexual violence and harassment the world over. That Me Too would come to symbolise the unmasking of structures that shadow sexual violence, shield abusers and care more about the propagation of power than the protection of vulnerable people. Power is charming. God knows this about us. The story we use to explain the fatal flaw of humankind is the story of two people in a garden who wanted to be God. When we try to be God, we create the world in our own image. We set up mechanisms that benefit people that look like us. And as we create the world in our own image, we do the same with God. We carve a golden calf in the shape of our privilege, a God whose power looks just like ours, often exploitative, manipulative, 
bending things towards his way. If I believed like a god in that right now, I would be crying, where are you? Where are you is the cry of the human spirit to God. It's written on the placards of protesters. It's whispered by the survivor of sexual abuse. I shouted it in the shower the day after I reported one of my most trusted spiritual mentors who had been sexually harassing me. But I don't believe in a God who looks like human power. I believe in a God who stands shoulder to shoulder with those whose power has been stripped away. The Bible is the story of the greatest plot twist in the whole of history. We expected royalty, robes and majesty, and we got royalty, but it didn't come with robes and majesty. It looked like a tender shoot springing up from dry, cracked ground. It looked like a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by the whole of humankind. The story of God is a story of sorrow, a story of pain and of prejudice. The good news, the gospel, is that God's answer to our cry of where are you is always I am here. Because God chose not to opt for a life of relative safety and security that goes with infinite power and self-sufficiency. God chose not just to be with us, but to become totally bound up with the suffering of humanity. In the incarnation, in the person of Jesus, we are never alone in this broken universe. Jesus hears our cries of pain and shouts of fear and replies, me too. I was abused and manipulated and wounded too. The God I hear in the voices of black activists calling for justice, in the stories of survivors of all kinds of abuse, is the God who chose to risk everything just to be with us. But what use is it if God is simply with us, standing by? After reporting my harasser, I remember shouting at Jesus, it doesn't feel like enough you being with me in my suffering right now. Solidarity isn't really solidarity unless it changes something. I think that's what Gregory of Nazianzus might have been getting at when he said, that which Christ has not assumed he has not healed, but that which is united to his Godhead has been redeemed. It's important to remember that Jesus was a particular person who went through a particular kind of suffering. He was a Palestinian Jewish man with brown skin, born a refugee, who grew up to be an enigmatic teacher, wrongly arrested by the authorities, brutalised with whips and crucified for being himself. It's important to remember that this is a particular story, but it's also important to realise where this story is being repeated. And within this story of God made human, the story of Jesus, God doesn't just stand by. God enters in to the very fabric 
of the human experience and reminds us that the story of Christ, the story of the Me Too movement, the story of Christ's Me Too doesn't end with the pain and the suffering and the abuse, it ends with resurrection. In Christ's Me Too there is hope. In Christ's Me Too there is new life. In Christ Me Too, there is a love that doesn't look like the pain and the manipulation and the coercion and the abuse, but like patience and kindness and humility and justice. Now, more than ever, it feels like the world is imploding and everyone is shouting all at once. The noise is deafening, but necessary. Because when we join it, we join in the groan of the whole of creation, crying out for justice, shouting, where is God in all of this? And if we listen carefully, we might hear God's reply. The cosmic me too of a God who knows our pain, inhabits it and redeems it. Social or physical distancing has affected billions of people around the world. The government has told us to stay at least two meters away from each other to stop the spread of the coronavirus. While walking down the street now, you might see someone look you in the eye, half decide in their mind which way to go, then avoid you. While this might be motivated by a noble desire not to pass on the virus, when it happens enough times, you begin to think it's just you. This can be painful. It makes you feel less human. It can make you feel othered. But it is only for a time like this, which will surely pass. There will come a time when your neighbor breezes past you or embraces you with a smile or a hug. Life will be back to normal. For many people, however, being distanced by others has been their lifelong normal. The rise in hate crimes, England versus Bulgaria football match, the views about foreigners and people of color during and after Brexit, and the disproportionate number of people of color dying of COVID-19, all contribute to a feeling of exclusion and isolation. If you're like most people in the UK, you get stomach cramps just thinking about the idea of talking about race. If you're honest with yourself, you may be one of those people who say, oh no, here comes a black man coming to tell us that we're bad for being white. All too often, statements are interpreted as personal accusations rather than to reach out to understand the content. We respond in a defensive and protective posture. In many cases, even statements of racial facts and statistics, such as definitions of racism, disparities in income and education, segregation of neighborhoods, hate crime figures, and so forth, are met with defensiveness from a white demographic. Defensiveness and dismissiveness are words I would describe the usual reactions to conversations about race I've experienced. I hope that we might be challenged by the Spirit of God to reflect on our uncomfortable postures, our disinterest, and our tuning out. And John 3, Nicodemus asks Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Jesus said, 
No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Then good old Nicodemus said, how can someone be born again when they are this old? We don't just discover Jesus' soteriology, but a reality of humanity. The exegetical idea is seeing. There is a blind spot. Nicodemus was a person of high status, and he was admired by people around him. He was faithful and religious, but he was completely and utterly blind. He was blind to the kingdom of God. He was blind to everything around him. The kingdom of God is not a world that submits to ordered reality and is not the one that uses natural eyes. The kingdom has kingdom people that seeks first God and his justice. The church is blind to our siblings in pain because we are using natural eyes. Reno Edo Lodge, and why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, says white privilege is the absence of the consequences of racism, an absence of structural discrimination, an absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost. Within a theological lens, Bishop Tom Wright says, the gospel is the announcement that everything has changed in the coming of Jesus. And it leads us to a new kind of living. It's the kingdom of God's lifestyle with allegiance to the king as the ultimate restorer. Kingdom people recognizes our own biases and embrace people anyway. Earlier this year, the Anglican church apologized for deeply institutional racism. The church commented and said that it was ashamed of its racist history. That same week after rejoicing for progress, I received a letter that caught me off guard. It said, Dear Augustine, thank you for your application. I'm afraid that despite your obvious gifts, we do not think it's worth pursuing a conversation about accuracy. We are not confident that there is a sufficient match between you and the requirements of the post. Firstly, the demographic of the parish is monochrome white working class, where you might feel uncomfortable. I wish you well as you seek the future God has planned for you, DDO. Princeton theologian Voss said, we live in already not yet. Therefore, there will still be racism and we are called to do better, to live like the kingdom is near. The Archbishop of Canterbury said that the church's hostile environment must become hospitable and welcoming. He called for a radical and divisive progress to end racism in the Church of England. We must work towards a radical new Christian inclusion. Accessibility is being able to get into the building. Diversity is getting invited to the table. Inclusion is having a voice at the table, but belonging is having your voice heard at the table. Is this radical new inclusion? Are the wonderful and beautiful brown and black bodies being heard at your table? Or have they not even been invited to the table? Can they even get into the building? Does your table look more like a table of bank executives or like the kingdom of God? We are kingdom people. And kingdom looks like the prophetic vision and revelation. After I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. 
we must move from exclusion to embrace. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, any church that stands against integration and has a segregated body is standing against the spirit of Jesus and fails to be a true witness. It's not about cheap diversity, but belonging. The church can invest in multicultural education that has a strong anti-racist orientation, which is the utmost importance for helping children, as well as adults, develop non-racist identities. Individuals who have come to recognize their own biases and beliefs and prejudice, and even their roles in perpetuating racism, and the pain that obviously has been inflicted on people of color, and their privilege that has advantaged positions in societies may feel overwhelmed by the multitude of problems. But God is not colorblind, and neither should we be. This is authentic kingdom living. This is radical, inclusive discipleship. We wait for a future glory. And until we wait and see that, we will sing the old Negro spiritual sung over and over by my grandparents and my great-grandparents. We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.